We're continuing our series, uh, This Is My Son, Listen to Him. And uh, in this first part of this series, we've been working our way through the uh, famous Sermon on the Mount, or as we've been seeing it, it is a, a covenant declaration where Jesus reaffirms the covenant that was made with uh, with Israel at Mount Sinai and uh, and shows how he uh, fulfills perfectly and completely uh, the law that God has given to his people. We're up to a, a section of this covenant declaration that uh, is a little bit controversial, maybe. Uh, most of it has actually been a little bit controversial, hasn't it? Uh, but this, this passage contains some verses that are, are fairly well known and have uh, often been, I think, taken out of context. Uh, now, this, this part of the covenant declaration corresponds to the article in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, you may be used to praying in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, which comes from the version of the prayer that we see in Luke's Gospel that Jesus presents on a different occasion. Uh, You may also be used to praying as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, That that word sin there in that part of the, the prayer doesn't actually come from either gospel because uh, Luke's prayer also has, as we have here in Matthew, as we forgive our debtors. Uh, it's thought that maybe because Matthew was a, a tax collector and that he thought in terms of money that uh, he uh, used, uh, he expressed Jesus' uh, prayer here with this term debt. But I think there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that we need to see this teaching of Jesus on forgiveness as being given to covenant people, to a people whose sins have already been forgiven by the Lord. And on that basis, that they're walking in his grace and his favour. So this prayer is not asking for forgiveness in terms of salvation, but in terms of the ongoing wrestling with the presence of sin in our lives. As we, as we set our eyes on the day when we will be finally free from sin in the new creation. And this, this battle with sin isn't just one that we know privately between us and God, but between also us and one another. How do we deal with the damage that sin brings to our relationships? How should we respond when we see others sinning? Or when, as is more often the case, then we realise we differ with others in some way and we interpret their actions as sin, even if they are strictly not sin. That's why I believe Jesus uses the word debt here. He's, he's emphasising the relational nature and impact of our sin. If I sin against you, I owe you a debt. It's not just um, a, a sin that I commit in the privacy of my own heart. Now, later in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus will give us some very pr- 
practical teaching on how we should respond and reconcile with one another when sin damages our relationships. Here, Jesus talks about the mindset that the law of love your neighbour as yourself calls us to have. Now, verse 1, do not judge, is probably one of the most quoted verses from the Sermon on the Mount. It's often quoted without actually knowing the the context of the rest of Jesus' words in which it sits. In our modern culture, we we live with this uh, strange, bizarre irony. On one hand, it's said that when it comes down to it, there is no absolute truth. Each one of us must find out what's true for ourselves and and not just go along with what anyone else tells us to believe. And in this thinking, my identity and my value as a person are tightly bound up in the truths that I've chosen to believe or create for myself. So I can't, I don't, I sh- on one hand, I shouldn't have to take on beliefs other people impose upon me, but I also should not impose my beliefs on anyone else. That, that's what our culture is telling us. What that means is that if you disagree with me or challenge my beliefs, it's seen not just as a challenge to that belief system, but as a personal attack on me. And if the belief system that I've custom made to to suit myself and to create my identity is under threat by people challenging it, that's going to make me very feel very insecure because I don't have an anchor outside of myself in which I can find my security. And so I respond to that insecurity by telling you, you're judging me. Do not judge. At the same time, in our culture, we know deep down that we can't actually operate purely in this individualistic way if we're, if we're going to be part of a cohesive society because we need to have some shared values in order to survive as a community. So what we also see happening today is that some of the truths that previous generations held to be true Uh, held to be uh, self-evident, they're being challenged and they're being replaced with new truths, new values based on not on an objective outside standard like God's law, but on what the majority feel is right. It's a little bit like in the times of the judges in the Old Testament times when instead of looking to that objective standard of God's covenant and his promises and his law, we're told everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That didn't mean that everyone just kept to themselves and had their own individual set of rules, but it meant that they just went along with the status quo rather than the righteousness that was revealed in the law. 
Now, the outworking of that is that if I stand firm on conservative values, values that are seen to have been superseded by these new values, well, I'm labelled as being out of date or regressive or bigoted or hateful. In other words, judgmental. So it's it's all important in in our cultural context to see what Jesus means and what he doesn't mean by do not judge. Now clearly he doesn't mean being discerning about what people are claiming to be true. Because we'll see in verses 15 to 20 that he warns us to watch out for false prophets bringing false ideas and to actually assess these people according to the fruit of their words and actions. We can't avoid the fact that in many places in the New Testament, there are warnings about both false teaching and false teachers. And sometimes the, the false teachers are mentioned by name. Similarly, uh, do not judge doesn't exclude us from approaching our brothers or sisters about their sin. See how verse 5 actually allows us to take the speck out of a brother or sister's eyes, provided we've dealt with our own heart first. And as we come in a humility that acknowledges that our sin, a log, is likely to be greater than their sin, a speck. Now see how Jesus invokes the, the law's principle of reciprocity. We're told not to judge so that we're not judged. And then he, he fleshes that out by saying that we will receive back the same to the same degree the judgment that we give to others. Now he's not stating some kind of karma here as if whatever we do gets stored up somehow by the universe and will inevitably come back to bite us or to bless us. What he means is that whatever standard we insist of others is the same standard that we should expect them to hold us to. For example, if we say that the church should always be loving and forgiving and accepting of us without holding any of our faults against us, well, that's how we must act ourselves towards everyone else. And we should be happy to be held accountable to that standard and to be told if we ever fall short. If we don't, we're being a hypocrite. Or uh, we, if we criticise another person in any way, whether it's publicly or privately in our hearts, then we need to remember Jesus' words. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. 
What does it mean to judge? To, to judge in this context is to look at someone with a self-righteous attitude, assuming that their sin is greater than our sin, presuming to take the place of God by making an assessment of whether that person should be forgiven or not. Now, how does verse 6 fit with all this? Don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw pearls to pigs. Now, this is another verse that's also commonly taken out of its context. Many people, I believe, wrongly think that this is about how we share the gospel. Uh, it's strange to me, though, that Jesus would suddenly jump from do not judge to here's how you're to go about sharing the gospel. See how verses 1 to 2 contain three statements that are parallel to each other in this pattern of uh, reciprocity, my actions and what happens to me as a result. And then see how verse 6 is also parallel to verses 1 or 2 with, with that same pattern of my actions and what will happen to me. So verses 1 and 2 and verse 6 are like bookends to this short section. And they're essentially saying the same thing. Some have suggested that Jesus here is giving a qualification to his command to not judge by giving us uh, an exception to the rule, uh, an, okay, an occasion when it's okay to make a judgment, uh, when people are ungrateful or disrespectful, when they don't see the value of what we are offering them. And in that case, we're told, uh, we shouldn't waste our time or our resources on them. Uh, instead, we should only share the holy things and the pearls of the gospel or God's gifts uh, with those who will appreciate them. I don't think he's saying that. In fact, I think he's saying the opposite. Let's look at some of the background to these words to understand why this verse is essentially affirming the same thing as verses 1 and 2. Now, for Jews, dogs and pigs were among the most despised of animals. Uh, unlike with the Gentiles, Jews wouldn't farm pigs. Why? Because pig flesh was unclean uh, under the law of Moses. And they didn't keep dogs as pets. And they certainly wouldn't consider them to be a member of the family like we do today. In, in the land of Israel, you would only encounter a dog or a pig in the wild. And often it would be in places like the rubbish dump, where they'd be scavenging for food. So not only were they filthy and disease-ridden animals, they were also aggressive. They would, they would attack you, especially if you came between them and their food. So it would be unthinkable to take holy meat that had been set aside for sacrifice in the temple or the most precious item in your home like a pearl and 
just go down to the dump and give it to the unclean, violent dogs and pigs. Now, obviously, Jesus is using the words metaphorically here in a, in a way that people would have clearly understood. See, a respectable Jew of the time would use the word dog or the word pig to refer to people they didn't like, particularly Gentiles and Samaritans. It was an expression of contempt at their perceived uncleanness and their their lack of appreciation for the holy things of God. Like dogs and pigs, they thought, Gentiles and Samaritans were not worthy of God's gifts. They would only defile the holiness of God's people if they were allowed to come in and worship uh, God uh, with God's people. Now, this attitude had uh, grown to the point where it influenced how the temple was being run. We know the story, don't we, of Jesus entering the temple and seeing the traders and the money changers. Uh, he was angry and he, and he drove them out. His objection wasn't just that there were trading, that there were uh, thieves in the temple courts. But the issue was that these outer courts of the temple were designed to be a place that people could come and pray. And they were not just for Jews. They were for people of all nations. So as he drove these people out, he called out, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. See, because of their disdain for the Gentiles, they had excluded them by filling this space of prayer with traders. Now we have to honestly ask, can it really be that Jesus is endorsing this attitude here? We know that Jesus spent time and was criticised for spending time with outcasts and with disreputable people, with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, immediately after this sermon in Matthew chapter 8, we see him allowing an unclean leper to approach him and even more scandalous, he actually touched the unclean leper in order to heal him. Then he speaks to an unclean Roman centurion, a Gentile, and he heals his servant, and then he commends him for his faith. And then shortly after that, he takes his disciples across the lake to an unclean Gentile region where he brings deliverance to a Gentile man possessed with unclean spirits in an unclean place among the tombs right next to a herd of 2,000 unclean pigs. So how, how could Jesus be giving us permission to judge someone as a dog or a pig to say that this person is too far gone to be a recipient of God's gifts when it seems to be the complete opposite of what he himself did? Well, 
I believe this dilemma is solved when we read this verse as Jesus challenging another of the traditions or the practices of the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice how Jesus uses the word hypocrite in verse 5. The same word that he used three times in chapter 6 to those who wanted to make a show of their acts of righteousness in order to win the approval of others. One of the ways that the hypocrites could do that was to, to give in a showy way to the beggars on the streets or to the temple. Remember, the Jews of the time considered misfortune in life to be a sign of God's judgment. So if someone was poor or disabled and begging on the street, they must have some secret sin that they were being punished for. What they meant was giving publicly to a beggar could be done in a very patronising way to demonstrate that unlike this person who's obviously morally compromised, as shown by their misfortune, you, on the other hand, have God's approval because he's blessed you with worldly wealth. And you're demonstrating that moral virtue by being generous to this beggar on the street. There's also a, a bit of extra biblical evidence that this terminology of giving valuable things to dogs and pigs was already around as a proverbial saying, even before the time of Jesus. And it described the way in which I might deliberately present to someone something that they won't be able to appreciate or understand purely to demonstrate how I am superior to them. Um, uh, some examples of this might be that I might use lots of wise and eloquent words and quote lots of people whose books I've written, I've, sorry, not written, books I've read. I might even quote books I've written to, to speak to someone who I know hasn't had the same level of education as me. And I'll do it knowing that it will make them feel intimidated or appear to be dumb. Or I might... Uh, look at someone who's has, had a disadvantaged upbringing and critique them for not having achieved the, the same standard of living that I have, even though I've only been able to have that standard of living because of my privileged upbringing. Or I might look at my brother or sister in Christ as they're struggling to work out what it means to, to grow more Christ-like and I take notice of the times that they stumble and I assume that they're acting in deliberate disobedience. So I rebuke them or I criticise them or I gossip about them. And doing this makes me feel better in myself because it shows that I'm clearly more spiritually mature than them. So to throw your pearls before pigs to give what is holy to dogs uh, is to put yourself up there as as better, more superior, more spiritual, more righteous than another person. In other words, to judge them. Now, we've spent a lot of time on this one verse, but I've done this deliberately rather than simply saying this verse means this. 
because I want us to see how important it is for us to uh, not only correctly understand what Jesus is saying, that's, that's all important, but it's also so important to never take a single verse and to read it outside of its context. This is really the first and most important rule of reading the Bible, and in fact any piece of literature, the rule of context. If we ever encounter a Bible verse that's hard to understand or seems initially to be contradictory to something else we've read in the Bible, we must always ask, what do the verses immediately before and after it say? Uh, What is the larger passage it sits in all about? What about the book that it's in? What's that about? Uh, How does the book fit into the big picture of the whole Bible? Now, as I've been saying each week, we're hearing the law speaking here in these words. This is the law that we're told in 1 Timothy 1, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law reveals our sin. It requires us to point our finger first at ourselves before others. I I can guarantee that as we've been looking at these things, at least some of you may have been thinking, yeah, I, I know someone who is judgmental like this. They really need to hear this sermon. But see how the law has trapped us. As soon as we say or think that, we too are then being guilty for judging someone else for being judgmental. The only, the only one who is truly qualified to say, do not judge, is the one who is the only sinless judge, Jesus himself. So the law given in its current form, framed for sinners, comes to us in the negative prohibition, do not judge. And the law invokes this principle of reciprocity and says, because you judge, you will be judged. Because you break the commandments of God, God himself will judge you. But the second half of our passage this morning is the flip side of this strong word of law. It shows us how our relationship to the commandments of the law is transformed when we come under grace, when we begin to no longer fear the condemnation of the law, but rather delight in its goodness and its perfection and its love. This passage also invokes the principle of reciprocity, not to show judgment, but to show us the blessing of grace-fueled obedience. Now these uh, verses, ask, seek, knock, they're more verses that have actually often been taken out of context. They're not, as some have said, a verse about me praying with great faith in order to receive things from God. The, The context, as we've seen, of this whole passage is judging or not judging one another. So rather it's 
describing a, a mode of living and relating to one another that expresses grace and humility. All these actions, these three actions of asking, seeking and knocking, they require me to be dependent on others. They require humility. If I ask something of you, it's because you have something that I don't have. If I seek, it's because you know something that I don't know. If I knock, it's because you're on the inside and I need your permission to come in. See, this is the opposite to giving to dogs what's holy and throwing pearls before pigs. Because I'm saying that apart from the grace of God, I am the dog. I am that pig. And any good thing that I receive is a pure gift that I don't deserve. I'm not entitled to take, so I must ask and receive. I'm not able to know, so I must receive and learn. And I don't deserve to be on the inside, so I must knock and be allowed to come in. Uh, I remember years ago uh, in a previous church we were at, there was an elderly woman who had early onset Parkinson's. And one day she confessed to the whole church her sin of pride. Now we were all shocked because you couldn't find a more gracious and godly woman anywhere. But she confessed she found it very difficult to accept help from others. She'd rather spill her cup of tea from her shaking than ask someone to carry it to the table. For her. She, she realised that she needed as much grace to receive from others as she did to give to others. Asking, seeking and knocking means confessing our own weakness, our own ability, our own sin and the fact that we are dependent upon one another to receive the Father's good gifts. It means that when I look at my brother or sister, I don't notice their faults that enable me to put them lower than me, but I notice the gifts that the Father has given them and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in them and the way in which they show me Jesus. I actually put them up above me. This is grace-fueled obedience. This reflects the character of God himself. Look at verse 11. Jesus is employing here a, a common rabbinical way of making a point called kalwahoma, uh, which literally means from light to heavy. It's marked by this phrase he uses, how much more. Now we know that in a, in a family relationship, which is a covenant relationship, a child asks their father for something and their father is pleased to give them what they ask. The loving respect of the child is rewarded 
by the loving provision of the Father, not as a payment, but as an expression of this covenant relationship. This happens in our human families despite the fact that we are evil by nature. Jesus says, how much more do we know this dynamic in our relationship with our Heavenly Father? In Him there's no shadow of evil, there's no uncertainty in His motives. He gives because He delights to give to those upon whom He's set His favour. We come boldly to His throne of grace, not presumptuously, but because He invites us and because we know that In Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. We we come before him because Jesus, our great high priest, is already there asking on our behalf. We come because we recognise our complete dependence on him for life and breath and everything. This This is a freedom of relating, of asking, of seeking of knocking, of receiving and learning and submitting. This is, this is the freedom of life in the kingdom of God. Now, our passage ends with this famous golden rule. Now, notice how it's not, it's not the bronze rule of do good to others who also do good to you. That's a good principle, but it's not perfect standard. Nor is it the silver rule of do to others, uh, sorry, do not do to others what you wish they would not do to you. This is the golden rule. See how it calls us not to do good if we think we'll get good in return or to simply avoid doing harm to others, but it teaches us this proactive love, a a giving of myself in such a way that loving my neighbour might actually result in me losing everything for their sake. See how that's the opposite to judging my neighbour. Instead of setting myself over them in order to prove my goodness and their weakness, I instead make myself weak in order to serve them for their good. Out of all the uh, moral and religious teachers of the world, this rule is found in the Bible alone. It's not strictly unique to Jesus because Jesus is simply reaffirming and unpacking what both the law and the prophets had said, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, versions of the bronze rule and the silver rule uh, do appear in other religions and philosophies, but nowhere else do we see this perfect expression of the Father's character. God, our Father, has treated us as his neighbours. He's loved us even when we were his enemies. In Jesus Christ, we see the perfect expression of the golden rule. As he he who called people to take up their cross and followed him, then took up his cross 
and laid down his life for us. He who alone is qualified to judge because he is without sin has instead turned his judgment aside from us and taken it upon himself so that he may say to us, I do not condemn you. The Father calls us to come to him, to ask, to seek, to knock, with the confidence that he has and will give us good gifts, the gifts, the gift of life in his Son, the gift of faith, hope and love in the Holy Spirit. So we can confidently ask him to give us our debts. And as we, we live in this new life, life in the spirit, life with one another in the church, we can also confidently pray as we forgive our debtors.